Hello and welcome back to How To PhD episode number 18. In this second part of our two-part interview study series, we'll be talking about actually running the interview study itself. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Aaron and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Julia. Hello. And so firstly, welcome back to the podcast after such a long time off. Um, and firstly, you know, as, as many of you uh, may be aware that we needed some time off for ourselves. Um, and But now we're back and, and ready to uh, support you guys on your PhD journey. So firstly, thank you to all of your support during this time that we've been away. We've been so happy to see that people are continuing to listen to the show um, and that it's actually grown so much over the last uh, weeks and months. Um, so as I said, we're really, really excited to get back uh, and help you to get through your PhD, master's or even degree years. So very happy and pleased to be back. Um, and now we have the long awaited, I guess, part two to our interview study episode, which we had the first part uh, released a couple of months ago. Um, and so today we're covering everything you need to know about actually running the interview study itself and a kind of a first look at how do you go about analyzing interview studies, um, which could be important if you're kind of planning on using this method in the future. So Julia, um, we mentioned in the last episode that we had quite a quite a few experiences running interview studies, but how did you find the actual process of, of actually talking with participants and, and actually doing them? Yeah, I think I was really excited and you don't know um, who you're going to talk to. Um, so I think I was always quite um, quite a bit nervous before. But then it's actually nice to connect with people and to listen to what they have to say. Um, but I found it quite challenging, I think, at the beginning because you have to think about so many things. And hopefully today we will um, give you all the information that you need that can help you prepare um, for that situation that can be quite nerve-wracking. That's right, yeah. And, and particularly if you're, yeah, as you said, if it's the first time you're conducting one, then there's a whole lot of material that you need to remember and you might forget to do things because mm -hmm. you're focused on loads of different things. So as before with the previous episode, we had three parts. And today, again, we're going to be talking about three parts to this. So before an interview, doing the interview, and then, of course, what you do after the interview. So let's get going with the first part, which is around how do you prepare before conducting an interview? Okay, so let's talk about everything you need to do before an interview. So, Julia, what would you say for our listeners is kind of the first key point that they should do when they're preparing to run their interview study? I would recommend to check that the timing um, of the interview is still convenient for the participant because there are busy people, there might be working or whoever, yeah, depending on who the group is that you're interviewing. But um, I think it's always a good idea just to send an um, email reminder, for example, or a text message um, saying like, are you still free today? Looking forward to speaking to you later or something like that. Um, just to save you a lot of frustration if people forget or are they not available at the agreed time, which happened to me a lot near my interviews yeah. um, where I try to call people up on the schedule time and they were not answering the phone or I said, oh, sorry, I forgot or I can't speak right now. Yeah, th this is really, uh, and I, I can think of many examples where it was actually my follow-up reminder that reminded the participant that they actually had an interview mm. with me. So you, you never know, it would save you a lot of time just sending out that quick message is really a really useful tip. Um, and I guess 
once you got to the point where you're actually conducting the interview, then knowing or familiarizing yourself with the interview schedule is really, really important. And so for those who who might not know, the interview schedule, as we talked about in the previous episode, is essentially uh, all the questions that you're going to be asking the participant, uh, as well as any prompts. And um, you might find that as you do an interview that the participant jumps, uh, they might start talking about something that is in your interview schedule much only much later on um, or they might be talking about things in a different order to how you expected or how you have in your interview schedule so if you know it back to front if you know it very very well then you'll be able to sort of adapt to that kind of change in the interview um, quite quite seamlessly then mm-hmm. yeah I think it can be really really challenging um, even if you know the questions well if as you said if people are jumping around so maybe you could think is also to practice with someone um, yeah. or to have some um, yeah pilot interviews basically where you see your topic guide is working and um, yeah just get some practice into um, the, yeah going into interview question dealing with that definitely. yeah I, I might actually say that actually piloting the interview and mm-hmm. I, I can't now because it's been so long since we did the last episode I can't remember if you mentioned this but the importance of actually piloting your interview study getting two or three people who might be from your office and actually just running it through with them um, gives you that confidence as well as mm-hmm. well as test your interview schedule for any kind of obvious yeah. problems and because uh, i think then you can see if you still need to look down on your interview schedule a lot um while conducting the interview and i think that might happen actually if you're just checking oh what did we talk about what did we not talk about and you like i think over time you get less dependent on t- your interview schedule but at the beginning especially i think it might be a good idea to have it printed out and then i sometimes just put a little box um, on the questions that we had already kind of covered and the ones that I hadn't um, fully explored yet just to help me um, because you have to listen and talk uh, uh, yeah or listen why keep an eye on time and also keep an eye on which question you cover or not so that can help you a little bit there's a lot of yeah absolutely a lot of things to think about and familiarization is always key um, and of course then now whether you're conducting interviews face-to-face or in person or online, um, there will be some equipment that you you, you nearly always record your interview mm. study, right? And so just basic things like check the recording equipment, test, test uh, tr- try recording with it, um, l- learn how the pause function works, make sure it's saving yeah. the stuff, um, just test the equipment before. Yeah, it, and as you said, piloting an interview can help you with that. So I like to imagine it would be a real situation and you really need this data because i think once you start um the interview you have that pressure that oh i need this data now um because you're using someone's time and um would be the worst thing if you forget to record it or something goes wrong um so yeah test it that's definitely i think one of the most important things yeah yeah and of course uh, with face-to-face interviews always take copies of things like your interview schedule the information sheet uh, consent form which you will probably have printed copies of those anyway if you're doing Mm -hmm. that face-to-face but if you have extra information sheets for example extra leaflets of relevant organizations who might be involved in your study um, you never know when people ask to take these things away or will want to have a quick read again before the interview starts and if you have that stuff prepared then you can just quickly give that to them and and that's that sorted exactly because sometimes even if you already sent them the information sheet or consent form and they might not bring it they might forget it or um so it's always good yeah as you said to have a backup 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. And of course, in person and video interviews, you have this element of actually seeing each other face to face. And so considering how you present yourself, right, of course, that's just presenting yourself in a professional way. But of course, in different contexts, that might be something you might want to consider. Mm-hmm. You might not want to wear a very formal uh, business attire for an interview where you might be talking about something quite personal, uh, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just something to, there's no you know, hard and fast rule about yeah. what to wear, but essentially think about your audience and, and think about a setting that's going to make them feel comfortable. And these are all things that you can prepare yeah. beforehand. And I, I think for me, I felt sometimes during my PhD when I was interviewing and talking to pharmacists that because maybe I looked relatively <laughs> relatively young or not so experienced maybe that they thought, oh, maybe she's not that experienced. Um, so I think I was trying more to look a bit more professional so that they, mm. it's, it's, it is like that. I think, yeah, how you dress like sometimes can make an impact. So um, yeah, just keep that in mind. Absolutely. And I guess a final point, um, and this is very specific to if you're doing these interviews face to face, is kind of an element of, I guess, personal safety, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, this was something I didn't really consider at all. But, you know, for example, if you're doing it face to face and you, you, of course, don't know the person that you might be in the room with, uh, only bring things like your essential valuables, for example, you know, only bring the essential stuff that you really need for the interview. Um, and of course, uh, make sure someone knows where you are, what's the location you're conducting the interview in, um, that you know how to get in touch with someone if you need help um, for whatever reason at all. Um, it's just worth having those kind of safeguards yeah. in place. Yeah, I, I did a training on like these kind of safety, a safety training um, when interviewing. And I, I hadn't really, as you said, like I didn't really think about that much before. But and because it, it, I mean, it sounds so bad if you say, oh, if you go to an interview, you have to think about your personal safety or, or not bringing any values. But I think um, it's better to like do precautions and never de- need them. Yeah. But then the, uh, be on the, the other, safe side. Be on the safe side. And I wish I'd known that earlier when I was doing um like studying music and i was teaching a lot um children at their houses and i was going to a lot of different people that i did not know and um i i think nobody back then told me like to make sure that somebody knew where i was um That's right. and i think yeah it's, it's, it's a good thing to do yeah absolutely so hopefully that gives you a good idea of what you can do on a sort of practical sense before the interview study now Once you're done all that and you're prepared and ready to go, let's talk about how you actually do the interview itself. So let's talk about actually running the interview itself. So I guess the first part to really talk about, Julia, is around what the structure of an interview study typically is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the first thing I would recommend to do is just to introduce yourself. It sounds very basic, but I think it can make a difference. Um, You you are going to ask people about like so many questions and there might even be personal questions. So I think the least thing you can do just to tell them who you are. And um, so just saying like, oh, I'm a researcher here or PhD student there and I'm interested in that kind of research. And um, thank you for your time. I think this, this is just polite um a polite thing to do i once was interviewed for something um not in a research context but um the person just straight went into questions mm. without saying anything like even the, not repeating their names so i thought um yeah i didn't feel that comfortable then so i think that's just a nice it's thing. it's also a very easy way to start 
the conversation right it's something yeah. you know you know yourself very well mm-hmm. it's something you know you can probably say very well and so it mm-hmm. just gives you that first couple of sentences just to get going into the whole thing yeah and then i think after that maybe um can provide an overview of about what the study is about and how you will structure the um interview and um i think because you have then usually you have to take consent from the participant and um, in order to take that consent of course they have to know what they are signing up to and usually you would have given the information sheet to them already um but i think a nice thing that i started doing is asking the participants what they actually had understood so far about the study from the information they have received because i think if you just ask have you read the information sheet People might say yes, but they haven't really read it. Um, so I think just asking them about their understanding, and then you can use the chance to say, oh yeah, actually that's true. Let me give you a little bit more information or you just take them wherever they're standing at at the moment from their understanding. And um, yeah, with the consent, I think you can um, obtain that either in written form or in oral form. So I think we talked about that, if I remember yeah, correctly last I think time we a little did, bit. Yeah. But yeah, just don't forget to do that. <laughs> um, and yeah, depending on what you have ethics, which ethics you have, whether you are allowed to take, get oral consent. Then, as we just mentioned, please don't forget to turn on your audio recording. <laughs> um, what I did um, is that because you sometimes have to be careful that um, the interview, when you later on then transcribe it, that there is no identifiable identifiable information on that if you give it to a service to transcribe your data so what i did is that i um, had three separate recordings in the first recording i would record the consent and then i would stop my recording and then in a second recording i would um, have the interview and then i stopped the recording again and for a third time because i was collecting demographic information again which can be uh, as personal data so i had that again in a separate file mm. Um, so that worked for me really well um, and avoided that I had to cut the interview. Um, you just have to make sure that you label everything correctly so that, you know, okay, this is participant one, let's say. Um, but yeah, I think that was really helpful for me. Yeah. And I think what just a point on that is that, of course, in Europe, there's the GDPR, the mm. general data protection rules, um, which is the reason why you have to make sure that there's no personally identifiable information on these recordings. Um, but of course, depending on your ethics, if you have special exemptions and of course, the country that you're operating in, there could be different data privacy laws. So you might not have to do that. But of course, just double check with your ethics. Always ask your ethics ethics board um, if you have any questions like that and just be on the safe side Mm. when it comes to that kind of recording stuff Um, so now that we've talked about the structure let's talk about actually what what you can what kind of tips you can take into actually conducting the interviews so um, generally very basic tips to make sure that you arrange the interview to take part in a private and quiet place right and uh, I've made this mistake in my first interview study I took what was what I thought was a relatively quiet place which was uh, basically some sofas outside the office um, (laughs) which when you're sitting there normally is relatively quiet but then I realized in all the recordings is that as people were coming in and out of the doors you could hear the beep of the card machine and you can hear the door closing and the echoes from up the uh, kind of atrium in the building Uh, so pick a private and quiet place and as with all these things have a test before right Mm. maybe just go there run the pilot study see what it's like yeah and i think you should also let your participant know that they should be in a private quiet place especially i think your interviews went up that sensitive but mine um, had 
quite a sensitive um, um, topic. So, um, but still, although I told people um, to make sure they're in a private environment and they knew what we're going to talk about, some of them I could hear clearly they were in a supermarket or I had one interview where a person was at a petrol station. Um, and then I just asked, um, may, do you maybe want to do this at a different time? Um, because I felt it was not the right environment really to talk about these things and then you might not be able to go deeper into some topics. Um, so yeah, remind your participant and also make sure from your side that nobody's going to disturb you. That's right. Yeah. And I guess generally with the kind of way you conduct yourself in this interview, you know, it's it's really important to build that kind of um, rapport with the um, with the participant and sort of um, show interest and, and empathy in the answers and, and essentially to, to encourage honesty, right, to, to reassure them that there are no right answers. And I think a lot of this is there's a lot of, I guess, body language psychology here. And, you know, we're not the experts in this kind of stuff, but just doing things like, you know, using positive body language, using active listening, right? So basic things like don't lean back in your chair and kind of look around mm -hmm. the room while the participant is talking, um, you know, maintain some level of eye contact, don't be staring at them, but, you know, just to, to, to make those kind of confirmation head nods make those kind of encouraging mm. noises like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right <laughs> yeah i think it's a fine balance as well you mentioned empathy and i think of, i do agree of course you need to show um empathy in the way or just yeah i think yeah, your place is just to be there to listen and ask questions and yeah not not to judge um of course what to whatever the person might be saying um um, but it can be difficult um, because you should not you should keep your own point of view of, to yourself yeah. and um, it's not your place to be there to um, engage really or give yeah give oh I, I completely understand I was in a similar situation once that's not your place really you were just there to yeah listen and get this person's um, point of view but I think over time that will become um, easier as well so I think don't be too harsh um, to yourself if you notice in the first um, interviews um, that that you thought oh why did I say that or why did, did I not say that I think it's all about practice that's right and I think you know connected to this idea of um, I think this all links to really actively listening to the participants mm -hmm. response that there, there can be this temptation that you kind of ask the question and you sort of relax because okay well all right I've done my bit I'm just I'm just recording it I'm just letting them speak but actually you know if you're actively listening then you can avoid sort of jumping around topics and asking questions that they may have already answered mm. you know so we sort of mentioned this at the beginning of the show is that you know participants will often kind of if it's a very chatty person they might expand and end up saying things which you had a question for later on in your interview schedule and so if you then ask that question again yeah, yeah. then the participant might think oh well, I've already kind of said yeah. this they might not say that out loud mm. but you you might lose mm. them at that point and think oh, this guy's this person's not listening to me which doesn't mean that you can come back to a point the participant maybe you, you let them talk but they say something interesting and later you might say oh you mentioned this earlier could you tell exactly. me a little bit more about that yeah. so I think that's a maybe elegant way to <laughs> pick something up that you want to hear more about um, another thing that I want to say is that I think it's important not to be scared of silence or mm. um, because sometimes if, if you ask participant a question, they might have to think about something and one or two seconds on the phone where there's complete silence can feel like a really feel long, like a time. long time and you might yeah. have uh, the temptation to say something or but sometimes just 
waiting a little bit can get you the best answers i think just give your participant a bit of time it's absolutely true and uh, of course using things like lay language so language that the majority of people will be able to understand so not adding lots of acronyms and and very specialist words really really try and avoid that Um, and of course you know repeat for clarification and and in terms of if they if they give you a response and you sort of repeat what they say just to ensure that you've understood it correctly, which mm-hmm. is absolutely fine. But it's really important, and this is where the, the balance that you were mentioning before Julia comes into it, is, is, is not to put words into their mouth, right? Mm-hmm. And, and not to say, oh, so you must mean this, right? Yeah. You, don't, you really don't want to be saying that, but repeating for confirmation, one, yeah. ensures that you're listening um, and just ensures that for your own recording and your own data that you're understanding what they're saying. Yeah, and I had to do that, I think, a couple of times, especially if uh, people that I'm talking to there had like different accents. And for me, not being a native um, speaker, that also, it sometimes was not quite sure, did I understand that correctly? And yeah, as you said, just to repeat it for clarification, I'm just saying, I'm so sorry, um, I didn't quite... Un- is it correct how I understood it like this and putting in your own words and then see whatever they um, yeah, react to. Absolutely. And of course, make sure you keep an eye on the time, right? It's very mm. easy to for things to slip and for to, to, to begin to overrun. And uh, you want to really make sure that you keep to the time. People don't mind mm. if the study uh, ends a little bit sooner than you planned, but they do mind if it runs mm. over. Yeah. Um, and again, I think um, keeping um, time between, if you have, for example, two um, interviews scheduled, leave a gap between them because maybe one interview takes a bit longer or you start a bit later um, so that you don't have to look at your watch the whole time and think, oh my God, I have my next interview in like five minutes. I need to wrap this up now because mm. I think that can Absolutely. also not be nice if someone keeps looking on the watch. So yeah, make sure you have time after. I, and I think I always recommend, um, for me personally, I always had at least half an hour uh, between yeah. two interviews because it's um, quite intense as well you might yeah. be tired so I, um, I actually I would not do more than two three interviews in a day as well yeah. if they really can be quite draining and you want some time to reflect on it after as well absolutely um, so those are some practical tips now let's talk about so some final things to actually when it comes to conducting interviews which is um, particularly around how to deal with difficult or sensitive situations right so particularly when you're introducing difficult topics like bereavement or uh, money, drug taking, sexual health. Um, it's really important that with your questions, and, and again, this might go back to the previous episode where we were talking about how you design your interview schedule, but there is a method called the flower pot method, I think it's called. Um, but essentially, it basically means that you the first questions you ask are less intense or less Mm. um, personal and you kind of build up to that as you build your rapport and trust with the participant Um, and of course it's important that you don't press the participant for answers right if they Mm. if they say no I have no idea or um, worst case I'm not interested in answering that Mm. question or something like that Um, of course you have your prompts right which which might kind of encourage them to answer or might give them an idea of, of how they could answer that but then don't press any more than that because you don't want to begin to lead the participant. Um, and of course, you know, around this idea of not being scared of silence is giving the participant time to answer, right? So don't mm-hmm. feel that if there is this 
pause or break in someone speaking that that's a bad thing they could just be thinking about mm. about what to say yeah and i often notice that yeah people really warm up a bit more over interview the more yeah. you talk to them and when they realize oh this is actually a nice per to person that i'm talking to and <laughs> feel that they yeah. can trust you and that you're not judging them or um, just listening to them i think then they are um, more happier to talk about difficult topics and sometimes actually I think um, it might be nice for them. Sometimes they're really happy to share it because um, they never w had a place where they could talk about like some experience they had and they're actually happy for someone to listen there. Um, but yeah, as you said, like um, not pressing for answers. We are researchers and we want to have like, we want to have our research questions answered, uh, but we're also <laughs> human beings and That's our right. participants are human beings, not just um, research participants. And so we have to, yeah, respect that. Um, um, that they only share as much as they want to. And I think linking to that is that um, there might be times where people might um, need a break in the interview. Um, maybe they get a little bit upset or emotional. And then I think it's always good to ask, like, sorry, um, do you want me to turn off the tape for a little bit? Or would you like to take a break or stop the interview? Yes. If yeah. you um, feel the person's getting distressed, which doesn't have to be a bad thing necessarily. I think sometimes... Um, especially if you're talking about emotional topics, it's it can happen that people cry or um, and I think just giving them the chance to um, to um, yeah break or stop if they want to. But sometimes they might just say no, I'm actually fine. I just need a second here, and um, yeah, that's all you need to do. And now, so in all my interviews, I I had relatively sort of not very sensitive topics mm -hmm. right it was about design of cars but you dealt with some pretty sensitive topics with with the participants that you had so was there anything that you felt like you had to do if you felt like someone needed more assistance um i think i, I didn't have to in the end so but i had a um like just some um, charities or helplines that I could have had recommended if I felt like I needed to. So you had that, you had those charities prepared. and numbers ready to go. Yeah, and give and the, yeah, I think that was part of my ethics as well that they said I should have something in place. But yeah, it didn't happen. What did happen though once in an interview was that something happened, or the participant was telling me something where I know the organization hadn't acted in the right way. And so I had to um, kind of report that back um, and I was making my participant aware of that. Um, so yeah, just make sure that, imagine the worst case scenario will probably never happen, What? but what if, um, what would you do in that um, situation? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, seek help uh, for dealing with these kind of difficult situations if they do arise. Now, of course, mm -hmm. you might be working in a topic like me where You don't really have to think about it. But if you just have these ideas, um, so for example, it might not even have to be about charities or helplines. I knew with my participants, a lot of them were interested in learning more about automated vehicles, right? Because mm. it was this exciting new thing. So I had some articles and websites ready that yeah. I could just link them to. Um, and that just, it just makes you come off really professional and prepared and it gives them a nice feeling towards mm. the end of it. So just being prepared for all situations, difficult, sensitive, or just people who are curious, Is always a good thing. So that was quite a relatively long section. Uh, we got one more part to talk about in this episode, which is things that you need to do after the interview. So let's talk about everything to do with after the interview study. Now, 
Actually, this is true. This is not true for after the interview. This is very important for during the interviews. In between the interviews, it's really important to keep an interview diary, right? So these are things that you write, which kind of are your own personal thoughts between each of the interviews. So if you found that a particular question wasn't getting quite the response that you were expecting, then just make a note that you slightly tweaked the question or you uh, made a note to sort of emphasize a certain other part of your question or keeping a diary reflecting on sort of your interviewing style um your how you dealt with difficult situations and how well you think you did mm. um if there were topics that suddenly you realized are missing because people started bringing them up in another way all of this can be captured in that diary yeah or there might be topics that you didn't expect that they would come up but they're really interesting and um you can then take a note that you would like to explore that further in the next interview because I think you might be thinking, oh, I recorded the interview, so I have that information. Um, I can listen to it again. But sometimes, especially if you, you need to transcribe the interviews first or you have someone to transcribe them, then you don't have the transcripts immediately. Um, and you might have the next interview before you have your transcript. So I think just taking some notes um, during and after will um, help you to make the, the most of your interview study and your participants because you're reflecting constantly on um, on the content. Yeah, and on that point about transcripts, so for those who are not aware, what you typically do with an interview study is that you need to take that audio recording and actually translate it into mm. a written piece of text, right? Mm. And so uh, you can either do this yourself, which is really, really time consuming and incredibly boring and not very oh. nice. It's not very nice because then <laughs> you have to listen to the time. sound of your own voice. That like, is true. And I think that can, is... everybody, I think, who does interviews think are listening to your own voice. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't listen to any of our podcasts because <laughs> I can't listen to it. But um, I think, um, yeah, it, it's a good way. And I think good practice generally because you can start analyzing or, um, yeah, because you're yeah. quite close to the data then. But yeah, sometimes you just don't have the time to do that and you might want to use a transcription service, um, which again, you have to be careful that um, about the data privacy. And so um, in, in work, at least, we're only allowed to work with the transcription service that is um, yeah, approved by the university. So be careful with that. That's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, of course, we can. Uh, I think what, what's coming up, the tips that we're going to talk about now, um, we're going to mention them in, in sort of a passing. It's something to, to take care uh, to, to sort of keep in mind. Uh, but of course, we can go dive into this later in, in, a, in, in more depth in a later episode. But essentially what comes next is analyzing that transcribed interview. Um, and of course, you know, as I said, if you'd like an episode on specifically these techniques on how to analyze an interview, uh, do let us know uh, and get in touch with us. Um, but some of the programs that we've used to, to sort of quickly overview this kind of analytical process and to give you an idea of what's coming, um, there's a very popular program called NVivo, which is N-V-I-V-O, um, which is available on both Windows and the Mac. And it's essentially, um, you put your transcript in there and your able to then kind of organize all the things that the participants said so mm. you could do the same thing in an excel spreadsheet but this is a, it's a very it's a specific program designed exactly for this process yeah i think it just helps you to manage your data it's not yeah. a wonder machine that will analyze your data for you you still have to do that <laughs> um but it just um helps you um to manage that huge amount of of data um yeah 
Yeah. That's right. And so essentially all of this qualitative data or this, this interview data that you have is typically analyzed using a process called thematic analysis, right? And essentially um, what you do in this process and kind of the first thing you do is, of course, you, you get familiar with your data. So we mentioned that, of course, if you are transcribing it yourself and you're writing what's in the audio, then you're going to become very familiar with it, right? Because you're listening to it. Um, and of course, and then what comes next is this thing called the generation of initial codes. Now, the word code might sound like something quite technical and programming, but essentially what it is, is, is a, it's a word or phrase that summarizes what was said, right? So if somebody says a sentence, then you about, um, I find pharmacies difficult to use because there's no privacy, then the code could be around kind of difficult to use, privacy, those are the kinds of things that are coming out of that and you're linking difficult to use to, to being related to the privacy. So you, you're going through this process of, of essentially creating these little short codes that represent what was said. So you have to go through all the sentences and then once you have all these codes, which you could have hundreds of these kind of summarizing oh, yeah. words, <laughs> yeah, you then begin to look for themes. Oh, okay, these kind of all these codes grouped together, this seems to be about privacy or this thing seems to be around um, the design of a particular icon. And you then review those themes and then you name those themes and then you produce the report, right? So you're essentially taking all this huge amount of data and effectively summarizing it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do this as an individual, but it's also very useful to have a second person who goes through that same process and then you compare your results, mm -hmm. right? This is how you can begin to get some of that rigor in the qualitative data analysis, which some people might criticize about the whole process. Yeah, and it can be a very lengthy process, I think. And it might it might be that first you have so many codes and you, um, yeah, or you have difficult finding these themes. I think eventually, um, the question is like when to when is the right point to stop as well and I think it's when you feel that how you write up your report and your analysis feels that it's in a, a good summary basically of what you've heard um, and that your the themes are um, like independent from each other in a way that they might link but that you're not repeating yourself constantly I think that's a good indication that you have found different themes really in your data and yeah that if someone else a second researcher a third researcher would um, analyze the data themselves they would come to a similar conclusion I think and that's what you achieve by yeah having a second coder or a second researcher to help you yeah it's just that yeah it's a good representation and other people would agree with at being a good summary. Yeah, and so we'll have some links. Now, don't, now don't worry if none of that made sense or that's the first time you're hearing about coding and stuff. I know the first time I heard about kind of how you analyze this kind of qualitative data, it, it did kind of freak me out a little bit and it really didn't seem to make any sense. Um, so don't worry, but we'll have some links in the resources. And as I said, uh, if you would like a more detailed episode on specifically this process of thematic analysis, do let us know on Twitter, Instagram or email, however you want to get in touch with us. Um, and as I said, we'll have some links to some of the examples, some of our papers where we describe this process, uh, as well as some other papers which kind of talk about this whole uh, analytical process. Uh, so I think that's everything that we wanted to say with interviews. So as I said, this kind of analysis part can be take a huge amount of time, but hopefully these, this first part and the second part has given you everything that you need 
to really feel confident running interview studies and of course understand why you might need them uh, in your future studies. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of How to PhD. It was really wonderful to be back and talking to you guys again. Of course, if you know of someone who you think could benefit from this episode on interview studies, then please do share this and the previous episode with them. Uh, and of course, if you enjoy listening to How to PhD and you'd like to support us, you can do that by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting our website at howtophd.show and leaving a small donation through Buy Me a Coffee. Um, and huge shout out to everyone who's done that. We, we've had a number of people supporting the show over the last months when we've been away, which is really touching and was really, really, really amazing and to receive that support. And also got some really nice messages from people. And Absolutely yeah, right. So thanks to everyone. Thank you to everyone for their yeah, messages and support. Uh, it really did mean a lot to us and gave us a very nice positive light in, in a very difficult time. Uh, so do get in touch with us uh, over email, uh, which is contact at howtophd.show, our Twitter and Instagram, which is slowly getting back up to being active again after some time off, which is at howtophd.show. And of course, um, thanks to jobs.ac.uk who've been continuing to promote the show again in our sort of, um, in our, during our hiatus, um, and we'll really appreciate their support as well. Next week, Juj, we're going to be talking about something uh, quite interesting and quite important um, in the whole academic world process. Yes, so we're going to talk about how to peer review a paper, um, something that you might not even know what peer reviewing really means or how it all works with journals. Um, uh, you might get a request from a journal to peer review a paper and you might not know what does that what is that actually and are you actually capable of doing that? So hopefully we can, um, yeah give you a lot of advice on that yeah, a lot of things in this next episode which i really wish i'd known uh before <laughs> i started my phd so thank you again so much for listening again we're so happy to be back and we will we will be returning to our sort of regular schedule of uh, episodes every monday so on that final note we will see you next week take care and see you later